Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Cold Char Podcast. Uh, it hasn't been too long since I sat across from Pastor Anthony and we discussed uh, conspiracy theories in our last one. And so much has changed just in these last like three or four weeks as we're we're talking about the, the murders and then the subsequent protests and the riots and, and just the, the positioning that people are taking on this right now. And um, I've talked about my Christian faith in many episodes before. And uh, whether you're a Christian or not, I want to tell you that I feel I have a distinct responsibility to speak out against injustice and to have conversations regarding what the church and what the Christian's uh, role is at times like this. And there's very few people uh, that I could, that I would rather sit down and have a conversation with than than Anthony as we're going to formulate some of these things um, and what our responsibility is and maybe where we should go from here. Uh, but Pastor, I want to start with just saying like telling you how how I've felt the last couple of weeks, and I know that we've had additional conversations already, but um, it's I've been angry, I've been sad, I've been um, kind of feeling feeling a sense of hopelessness from a place of helplessness, and that there's there's nothing I can do, and I'm exhausted, and. Every time I think about how exhausted I am and how this this rage and this confusion that I'm feeling over these events and how even in just the last couple of weeks, it's impacted my relationships with friends. It's impacted mm -hmm. my marriage and my treatment of my wife. And it's it's a it's work that I've only been doing the last couple of weeks. And I can't imagine what that's like for people who have been putting in the work their entire lives and trying to bring truth and justice to events like this. That's how I'm feeling. How are, are you, you thinking specifically of that relation to what's been happening with the racial tension that's escalating? I think it was a compounding of the, the stay at home orders and the quarantine and some of the division that was coming from that and people's opinions around coronavirus and this coming at maybe what we can consider the tail end of that as the stay at home orders being lifted in a lot of ways. Um, and so is my reaction being somewhat affected by how tired I've been from the last three months of, of battling this, you know, illness and, uh, trying to come to terms with what that actually means? Probably. Yeah. And this might just be the boiling point of that. Um, you know, the image that comes to mind, Taylor, I read a book a while ago that a father had written after his son died. And he talked about the importance of sitting on the mourning bench, he called it, that when people are mourning, you don't try to step in and fix it. You just sit with them for a while. Um, and in some ways, you could see how Job's friends, they started out well. I think they sat with him for three days. And then it went off the rails from there. But the principle, I think, is an excellent one. And so I'm thinking of that as you're talking about feeling angry and tired and discouraged um, I think there's something to be said for um, looking at the place we're in and recognizing, okay, these are probably uh, reasonable or normal responses, and then trying to find people to sit with us and looking for others with whom we can sit. Not because that's the end goal, but I think it's an important starting point. Even, well, let's apply it right now to what's happening with all the racial tension. And as you have seen on social media, 
Um, it's easy to weigh in very quickly. What happened with the police? What's happening when protests turn to riots and things like that? But I wonder what it looks like for us to take a couple of weeks and just sit with those who are mourning mm-hmm. and try to um, just listen and relate and empathize and enter into the experience of people's lives who are different. Their lives are different than ours and their experiences are different than ours. And just taking the time to be present. And then out of that presence, I think you gain a momentum that allows um, love and wisdom and truth and justice, all those things to flow. Mm -hmm. I think that that's probably the key is sitting in that, trying to understand that and mourning alongside, but then making sure there's movement after that, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, the sitting isn't the end goal, mm-hmm. but I think it's an important starting point. Yeah. That's been, I think, a point of contention for me is that um, I understand I'm in a position that not everybody is, which is I am just privy to the plight of a lot of these communities, and I've been well aware of the injustices, uh, maybe a lot longer than most people have. I'm a social worker. We're, we're oh, yeah, about- yeah. We're taught about these things. We learn about these things. We learn about the systemic issues that um, despite what legislation may pass um, and, and the, that these things can still be reverberating throughout current day. And, and not everybody thinks that that's the truth. Um, Do you know when the last lynching was in the United States? The last official lynching? Oh, official. Yeah. No, uh, I believe it was 1981. 60s. Okay. In the 80s, I was uh, 12 years old when the last recorded lynching occurred. It's not that long Mm -hmm. ago. We tend to think of a lot of the history of the tension that we're seeing right now Mm -hmm. as being really far in the past somewhere, and it's not nearly as far away as we think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we as people have a tendency to um, look at the act, the current actions that people are taking and that we disagree with, and we put all our focus on that. And we forget to look at the past actions of ourselves or those who are similar to us and the injustices that that they've done and how that has led to the current state. It's racism, and slavery is America's original sin. That's what we were founded on. There's no way around it. Right. Our treatment yeah. of Native American people and then the slave trades that we were involved in and the Jim Crow laws and all these other things that just continued and continued as well as the lynching that you just mentioned, yeah. it's still having an impact. And for people to, to fail to realize that is it's harmful. It's yeah. really harmful. It, well, okay. Before I go there, I just want to say that, that how you're feeling resonates with me. I think how you mm-hmm. described yourself at the start here is very much how I feel. And um, there's multiple reasons for that. Maybe we'll get into different ones as we're going through this podcast. But I, w- I wonder if one of the frustrations you and I are both feeling is there seems to be a reluctance to recognize that systems can be laden with sin in at least Protestant history. And at least in the United States, I think it's probably different around the world. We tend to view things through a very individualistic lens. Um, So this is part of the nation's founding legacy also, which 
has some upside, but it turns out can have some real downside that we we just tend to think of, of things centering on individuals. But systems are made up of individuals. And when you bring sinful people into system creation, you're going to create sinful systems. And so just like people are in need of redemption personally, I think systems are in need of redemption. The Bible says all of creation groans. Surely this includes systems. And so you see comments about systemic racism, and it can be dismissed as kind of this SJW kind of thing. And, and yes, it can be taken too far. But to think that we haven't had systems in place in the United States for decades, if not centuries, that have systemically been discriminatory and at times even flat out abusive, to look away from that is just to be dishonest with truth and with history. Now, does it mean that I, as a personal individual, am somehow responsible for all these broken systems? Not necessarily. I, I don't want to take false guilt upon myself. I'm, I'm only part of certain systems. But for me, I'm part of the church. One of the things I've been looking at this last year is the history of evangelicalism in the United States. And something I found that was very discouraging to me was that there is a long history of division between, between blacks and whites and evangelicalism. Um, I mean, this has gone on <laughs> for as long as there's been evangelicalism in the United States. There's been bright spots. There have been people and uh, different individual, or sorry, different organizations in evangelicalism that have at times made very good inroads to address it. But there has been a huge rift between black and white evangelicalism. Okay, so now I'm part of this system, so to speak. One of the questions I have is, what can I bring into this church system that can offer uh, truth, healing, reconciliation, hope, that type of thing, with what's in front of me? Mm -hmm. uh, we live here in northern Michigan. Northern Michigan is not known for its diversity. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and so I, we don't have some of the same opportunities here in a practical sense that many other places do. And yet we have opportunities here um, in much smaller ways. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to figure out how to walk into those. And, and part of the hope that Christ brings is more than an individualistic hope. It is a systemic hope as individuals transformed by Christ begin to live and move and act in systems and bring the good news of the gospel to them. The one thing I'd heard, I was listening to uh, Stephen Furtick. He he was speaking uh, to his congregation. Still, a lot of it is remotely, but they released podcast audio. And he talked about, especially um, in larger churches, maybe in more metropolitan areas, how celebrated diversity can be in the congregation and still you can fail to acknowledge the disparity between those populations. And I think that that can happen as well. If you ask someone if they value diversity, a lot of people I think will say yes. They love the idea of that. But a lot of us can fail to acknowledge the disparity that exists. And the other thing that what you just said reminded me of is the term white guilt. And... I've had that uh, used against me in the past when I speak out against injustices like this is, Taylor, why are you feeling white guilt? That's not going to do anything. Why are you guilty, feeling guilty for being white? Um, I don't know that, like you said, I have to feel guilty 
for the systems that were in place necessarily and take on all responsibility for that. But I am going to feel guilty if I don't speak out now. And that's what I'm trying to protect myself from is using this platform to have these conversations. And with my Christian beliefs, I don't know that there's a better starting point right now than to try to talk through what our responsibility is as Christians. And then I'm going to bring a variety of people on subsequently after this, and we can get into other bits of the conversation. But this is where I thought it would be appropriate to start as changes have to be made. And I know that the church has to be involved in that. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad you brought up the subject of privilege because that's another one I've heard talked about in different ways. That sometimes when I hear it talked about, it is, I think, meant to be guilt-inducing for simply being who you are and how you were born. And other times, I think it's meant to help us see that through no fault of ours, we're simply born into circumstances that work in our favor, while other people are born into circumstances that don't work into their favor. And I think when you have that kind of discussion, it can be really helpful. Um, just acknowledging, I mean, usually you hear the term white privilege, but I think you can add it to probably lots of other things that you happen to be born into a family with educational opportunities and in a particular geographic reason, and the list can go on and on and on, that there's simply things in place for you that put less hurdles in your life than other people have. Mm -hmm. And to acknowledge that, I think it's actually really important because otherwise we can become really judgmental. So for example, it could be easy for me to say, look what I've accomplished in my life. I, I've really pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not entirely true. I mean, <laughs> I had to make some decisions within the context of my life, sure. But there was a lot of people and I'll say systems around me that were really, really helpful. Um, so someone else could be born into very different circumstances and work just as hard as I have in terms of um, sweat equity invested in their life and reach a very different place. Okay, does that mean they're somehow, are they lazy? Are they? No, they just were not born into the circumstances I was. So I don't feel like it has to bring guilt with us. I think it gives us an opportunity to say, okay, if I can look around me and see where other people were placed into situations where there have been hurdles placed in their life that I didn't have, but I could do something to help those hurdles either go away or make them easier to hurdle, <laughs> um, why wouldn't I do that as a Christian, right? And even if it's at some cost to myself, is I think that's part of Loving my neighbor, when we talk about biblical love, we always talk about self-sacrificial love that will cost us something. All right, if I can look around and, and see a way to show love to my neighbor um, by helping them find opportunity that through no fault of theirs, they did not have access to, that seems like a really good idea. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, you know, it's a different thing than sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? Because one of the criticisms will be, well, now you're going to social gospel. Now, those aren't, they're not antithetical, right? They can both go at the same time. Um, and I'd, I'd like to think that we as Christians can have this well-rounded approach to life where we're going, all right, I want to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with everyone I come in contact with. Um, but meanwhile, I also want to give a cup of water to the thirsty. That's mm -hmm. biblical too. Yeah. Yeah, I think about those areas of privilege, and I've tried to dissect some of them in my own life. And I think about um, a lot of times, for some reason, it comes 
down to, to college and the opportunities that I had with that. And so when I have discussions with people who maybe uh, don't see or understand the systems that are in place and the disparity that, that happens, um, I just think about all the times my dad was on the computer working on my student loans, working on applications, working on all these things that my 18-year-old brain would not have been able to process. And so for me, that was kind of like a big uh, realization was like, wow, college was this opportunity that pretty much everybody theoretically can have, mm -hmm. but there's hurdles within that too. The application process, uh, making sure that your grades were good enough, and then trying to figure out the funding aspect of it and applying in to complicated institutions with complicated applications to obtain funding that allows you housing and yep. food. That was all done for me. Yeah. It's not fair. It was. And so that's just an example. Well, it's also not unfair, right? right? It just is. Yeah. Yeah. It's just how it, it's just how it was. Um, but I think if that can serve as any type of example to people to just try to maybe dissect your own life a little bit and think of where maybe those things have taken place, um, it will give you a sense of the difference of where certain people are as compared to others and the opportunities that might come with that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think if it drives you to guilt, then that's missing the point of what we need to do with it. It ought to, it ought to be motivational. Mm -hmm. It ought to drive us toward love, toward loving acts mm -hmm. for others. Yeah. Uh, while you were talking earlier, Taylor, I wrote something down about the comment you made about churches, that even churches that celebrate diversity within their congregation can have a difficult time um, what, embracing it, perhaps. Acknowledging. Acknowledging. Embracing. Yeah. And I wonder if part of that is we want to celebrate diversity on our own terms. So, and this could be diversity, whether it's uh, racial or gender or you name it, right? Any kind of diversity. It can be easy for us to give lip service to it and say, yes, we want that, especially in the church, because it's a foretaste of heaven when all nations on earth are gathered together. But we want it to happen on our terms. And I think we see that happening societally as well. So let's go to the protests that are happening right now. We, we want people to be able to stand up for their rights, but in the way that we want them to stand up for it. So Colin Kaepernick just tried to kneel during, uh, during the national anthem. Uh, all right, you can make a statement for racial justice, but not like that, not on those terms. And then you'll have someone who, who wants to march down a city street. Uh, okay, but now you're disrupting traffic, so not on those terms. Okay, so who gets to make the call? This is one of my big questions. Who gets to make the call about how people get to take stands for things or about how people get integrated into society or the church? And I, so I'm trying to come full circle here and just recognize that I, I think I have my own set of expectations. I want you in my life, but I want you in my life on my terms. I mean, Taylor, mm -hmm. don't we struggle with this, with even things like our marriage? Mm -hmm. I want my wife to be present in my life on my terms. Uh, and then what do I do when that doesn't happen? You know, do I assume that she must be wrong? So last night, she and I both had long days yesterday. And we were tired. And I think both of us expected uh, the other one to show up in a particular way throughout the course of the evening, just in terms of how we were hanging out with each other and conversation time, different things like that. I think we were both disappointed. All right. What do we do with that? Do we assume that somehow the other person is wrong 
and then force them the next night, which would be tonight, to show up in the way we expected? Or is that an opportunity to go, okay, they're people too and had a long day and they might be imperfect, but they're doing what they can. Um, we're both extending grace to each other and we're trying to blend still after almost 30 years, we're trying to blend two different lives and in some ways, two different ways of viewing the world. This is all part of doing human community together and it's an act of love. All right. So what does it look like then in church life and in cultural life? to do the hard work of not requiring other people to show up on our terms, but trying to understand why they're showing up in the way that they are. That does not mean that everything that happens is okay and perfect. It's just saying, I need to make sure that I'm analyzing myself and asking the question, um, why do I insist that others be present in my life, in my church, or in my country the way that I am? Mm -hmm. Is it personal preference? Is it personal prejudice? Is it something in my life that's, is this coming from a place of brokenness or from health? Am I coming from a place of distortion or clarity when it comes to truth? And I've been thinking about that a lot in the last week, watching uh, demonstrations that are turning into riots or is it protests that are turning into riots. And I, I find myself as, as much as, that the violence that is often resulting from protests that are starting peacefully, and they we could talk about this later, they seem to be co-opted by groups that want them to turn violent. But nonetheless, I'm I'm trying to sit on the bench with those who are pro I'm sitting on the protesters' bench, right? Mm -hmm. I'm trying to sit there and ask myself, why am I uncomfortable with certain things? Um, why am I comfortable with others? And I, I don't know that I've reached a good conclusion on that yet, Taylor. Maybe this is something we'll talk about today or in future episodes. But I don't know. There, for me as a Christian, there seems to be something about discipleship there, surrendering, uh, surrendering my interior life to, to the observation of Christ through the lens of Scripture and asking myself, how do I be faithfully present and how do I be full of grace with others that I, that I may not yet fully understand, but I desire to? Did that make any sense? I felt like I rambled on that one for a while. I think that's the thing that I've been trying to push and trying to make people aware of is um, as you're seeing these protests, demonstrations, riots, um, are you looking at it through a lens of trying to understand why why they're happening um a great deal of focus has been put on the looting and the burning of the buildings um which is a sad thing especially if those efforts are being hijacked by yeah, yeah. outside forces um but but why are there large groups of people gathering in the first place and so i think you know god would want us to consider that first and foremost, and then we can look at the other areas. Um, it, it seems to me, and tell me if this matches your observation, as I've read news stories, in cities around the U.S. where law enforcement is walking with the protesters, it de-escalates. Um, 
And I, as best I can tell, that's been true everywhere I've read the story. Like they sat on the protesters bench. Mm -hmm. The people being protested against walked with the protesters. Mm -hmm. And there was something about that that de-escalated. And it's still a strong message. But there's there's power in that. Mm -hmm. It took place in Flint. Yeah. It took place yeah. in, in our own Michigan city and in a place that has experienced as a whole a ton of heartbreak and disparity. And for that to happen is is incredible. The opportunity that that sheriff was able to understand the need for him to do that. And when he did that, and as you see the violence that can break out in other parts as, listen, there is more than more than enough accounts of peaceful protesters being brutalized by the police now. Yeah. Um, and what I don't know for whatever reason, but when you have that taking place in certain cities and then in other cities where brutality could just as easily break out depending on what decision that sheriff made and instead he chose to walk with the protesters, that's a godly response to me. Yeah. And that is a response that is potentially saving lives. Yeah. And I would like to see more of that. Yeah, I think you're right. And unfortunately, the narrative of uh, the justice issue at the heart of this and trying to understand that is being derailed because of the violence. And I don't know if I've heard anyone defend, you know, looting and arson. Um, but I, I think my frustration with that, besides really feeling bad for the, the business owners who are experiencing that kind of thing, um, is it's distracting us from why did the protest start? You just mentioned yes. this. I, Taylor, I've never walked in a protest for anything in my life. Mm -hmm. And I have really strong opinions about things. I tend to do my, my speaking and protesting online or from the pulpit or places like that. I've been very vocal. I used to write tons of letters to the editor. Mm -hmm. I use my blog to, to do stuff, right? So I've not been silent, but there's been nothing that I've walked for before. If I, I don't think there's been anything, but I, I'm ready to. Mm -hmm. um, there's something about a bodily presence that is, I think it's beginning to sink in how important that is. It is. And I think that you know, people are realizing the importance of that. I know I am as well. And it is a, it is a moment where it seems like so pivotal that you want, for me, this seems to me to be so pivotal that I want to be able to, in 20 years, know that I had planted a flag yeah, yeah. at a moment like this. And the... I'll say com complacency right now, I think makes people complicit and it's saddening to me. Um, there are a, a great deal of people who have said, listen, man, that murder of George Floyd, there's no defending that. Yeah. And, and so guess what? As long as I think that, then I'm in the right and I can, I can just shut up now. I don't have to say anything more yeah. because that was murder. You're failing to understand that that, image, and I've spoken on this image in my last episode, to me was just such a telling and eerie and almost appropriate image 
to serve as a turning point yeah. because you have someone in that officer who is kneeling on another man's neck with his hands in his pockets. We've all seen it as a grotesque. It's eerie. It's disturbing. It's wrong. It's murder. I don't know if there could have been like a more appropriate image to spur a change. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I and I'm saddened that it had to come to that, but I don't know if it could be drawn up any differently. Like that to me just just it embodies all of the un- unfairness, all of the injustice in one action that all these uh minorities in the black community have been speaking about for decades. It just sums it all up for me. Wasn't Orwell's classic image was the boot on the neck. Mm-hmm. Here was the knee on the neck. Yeah. And I, you and I probably both saw the pictures side by side, Kaepernick kneeling, mm-hmm. the police officer kneeling and going, okay. In some ways it feels to me like some type of justice yeah. that we can juxtapose those two images because yes, that is why he kneeled. And then we go back, Taylor, and I posted some stuff about the shooting of Ahmad. I forget Ahmad's last Arbery. name. That was just, oh, that was such a hard video to watch. And one of my frustrations was the response, (laughs) the response of people that couldn't just sit in the moment and go, that is horrifying. Um, Yeah, and uh, if if nothing else, I hope this keeps bringing to light a, a history in the United States, like you pointed out earlier, that we seem to want to deny um, I think we want to believe that we really are the best nation in the world. Um, and frankly, uh, and I say this as a pastor, our history in many ways is atrocious. And I'm you know, a treatment of Native Americans. I've become more aware of that in recent years. Um, the treatment of the history of black Americans. I mean, to some degree, we've known this, but more and more details are coming to light and more and more stories. And I think, dear God, how are we not judged as a nation before this in some fashion? Mm-hmm. And maybe we have been. Maybe and I was reading in Romans this week, this idea that at some point God gives themselves over to the things that they want. And I've been wondering if we're starting to reap as Americans what we have sown and that, that um, and I'm not saying anything that's happening right now is a direct judgment of God, right? I'm, I'm actually going to talk about this Sunday mm-hmm. uh, in my sermon, different ways God allows judgment in the world. But I'm wondering if we're reaching this flashpoint in ways we haven't before, because there's been other serious times in U.S. history where there's been unrest, but things are coming to a head such that we are starting to see the harvest of a lot of sinful history in the United States. Uh, I'm not looking forward to uh, what the implications of that, but honestly, I feel like we might be long overdue. Mm. Yeah, it's, there's nobility in our history, certainly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, to gloss over the injustice that really the country was built on or that was implemented from the second we stepped foot on this land is doing a disservice to the groups who have been trying to talk about it all along. Yeah. And I'm, I'm ready to listen. Uh, I'm ready to act. I'm ready to lead. I'm ready to follow, which I think that's what a lot of people need to understand 
is this might look like following. Now, I in some way feel like a leader. I know you're a leader. You're getting on the pulpit. Um, but I wonder who do I have to follow now? Mm. Because there are people who understand the situation much better than I do. Um, and I have to sit with them and then follow them. And that's what that's where I think I'm at with all of this. So I'm going to use an image that's come into my mind recently. That is, I think we need to find a Moses to follow. Uh, and so as Christians, obviously, it's Jesus first, right? But in the Old Testament, when the children of Israel were led out of Egypt toward the promised land, they were following God, but Moses was the leader that God appointed to lead them. And as long as they followed Moses, who was being led by God, they were heading toward the promised land. But they kept saying, I want a leader who will take me back to Egypt. Mm -hmm. So there was something about, there's something to be said for the human leaders whom we follow. So I, uh, now that you brought this up, I'm going to have to talk this idea out, this idea of finding a Moses to follow. And I think what that means is finding Christian voices that we follow, not politicians first, not economists first, not sociologists first. And it's not as if they have nothing to offer. Hey, it sounds like we're on the ESPN. <laughs> I can't figure out how to turn the volume down. It's not as if they don't have anything to offer because I believe God gives truth to everybody in the world, truth that's important. But there's something to be said for aligning ourselves with someone who starts with a scriptural view of the world, a biblical view of the world, of the dignity of human beings and what love and justice looks like in that sense. And aligning ourselves there first foundationally. Now, who that is, I think there's probably a lot of people out there who are offering compelling voices. I wonder, Taylor, what it looks like for us to do it in northern Michigan. Mm -hmm. Because it seems to me that if I lived in Detroit or Flint, um, we I would be much more in the center of where a lot of the protests are happening. And it seems like there would be ways to... Um, you know, boots on the ground, grass, grassroots level, get involved. Um, Northern, <laughs> Northern Michigan doesn't quite offer those opportunities. And so something I have been wrestling with is what does it look like me to be involved and be an advocate where in our city, there's nothing happening downtown, mm. right? Um, so does this mean I'm limited to using an online presence like you, you do a podcast? Is it is it enough to take advantage of the venues we have in front of us? Or is there something about this time that is calling us to pursue something beyond what's readily available to us? I don't know. What do you think about that? I think I certainly understand where you're coming from with opportunity, maybe lack of opportunity or not having an understanding of what opportunity might look like here in Northern Michigan. And that is a that is an actual challenge. That's a very real thing. Um, but I also I don't want it to serve as some type of uh, excuse for me not to act, right, right, or for other people not to act. There are so many ways throughout just these course of events the last three weeks where people have been able to attach themselves to a phrase or an idea that is serving as some type of barrier between them and the reality of the situation. And they're going to cling to that until this dies down, fades away, and 
maybe they'll use those same defense mechanisms later during the next murder. Um, the benefit of the doubt is something that I have spoken on where the benefit of the doubt in these situations where people are losing their lives um, and giving the benefit of the doubt to those that committed the atrocity and waiting to see how it shakes out and what details come forth is that to me is blocking yourself off from the reality of the situation and trying to buy yourself some time when things aren't so raw and to, to just gloss over that and not have to come to grips with it and forget about it. And so I've been, I have been the most angry I've ever been. Hmm. I think, I think I've just the, these last couple of weeks, finally my wife had to sit me down and just say, dude, you are not here anymore. And it's been happening for the last couple of weeks. And I cannot push her off to the side. She's my number one earthly priority. But I also want this anger to be righteous. I want it to be present. I want to be, um, I want it to still be here somehow and somehow be fueling me, uh, but to not overshadow whatever positive actions I'm supposed to be taking. Hmm. I wonder if part of that frustration is there's nothing tangible in front of us we can put our hands on that feels like we're doing something. Yeah. In some ways, talking about it and praying about it and blogging and podcasting about it because it's not it's not physical enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and that resonates with me, but I also think that's not honest either about the power of words and the power of taking a stance on something publicly. Um, but I, I hear you. It's, <laughs> you you want to be able to, to literally put your hands on a thing or stand a place that you know makes a difference. Mm-hmm. And how we do that up here is a, is a harder thing to figure out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's no shortage of images that have come from the protests in these events. And yeah, I think actually you made me come to grips with something, which is, I think I'm envious of some of those people who can, you know what I'm envious of the image that I'm envious of was, uh, there was a line of black protesters and then they were separated by a line of white protesters that were creating a barrier between the black protesters and the police officers with the riot control. I wanted to be in that line so bad. Um, but yeah, I guess, so I guess that is leading me to have to try to figure out like, what, what does that look like? Where where am I needed in what capacity? Like, I know this conversation's needed, uh, but is it, is there anything else? Well, so here's the next part of the conversation, I think. And that is what are having the discernment to see what things will make a lasting difference and what things will undermine the cause Right. So that's part of the discussion, too, is if you're not careful, you can get caught up in momentum of something that will be counterproductive. So then how do you how do you uh, dedicate yourself to only those things that help you achieve the ends that you're shooting for? And whenever you have large groups of people that can get confusing pretty quickly, 
um, but just because crowd momentum is such a thing. And you've probably seen this before too, Taylor, that well, now, now I'm going to get off on a little bit of a rabbit trail. I'll try to keep it really short. Um, protests are often very different depending on where you're at in the protest. Mm-hmm. I remember a couple of years ago footage of um, some women's marches in D.C. where some news organizations showed some things that looked really inflammatory and unfortunate. And then I talked with people who were there and they said, I was there all day and I saw nothing that was reported. That must have been a tiny minority of things. Mm-hmm. And they're just highlighting that to skew what's actually taking place. So I don't even know what's happening then in terms of what's actually happening in protests that you see versus the the inflammatory things that get yeah. news coverage. You know, we often say if it bleeds, it leads. But if it burns, it leads too. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe we're not even seeing the full reality of what's happening in a lot of these places. I don't know. Yeah. I think how I've tried to approach it is um – is that looting and that burning is sad. Yeah. But if I believe in the the cause and I understand why there's now been a space for those actions. So I'm not saying I approve of those actions, but I'm saying there's now an opportunity for those types of actions. And it stems from what was peaceful protesting. And so I, I think my responsibility is to uh, look at those I can be compassionate, but I have to understand that that is not representative of the change that actually needs and is trying to take place. Yeah. And if that is where all of my focus lies, um, then you're not participating in the change and you're, you're relegating what is a very important movement to looting and rioting. And it's much, much more than that. It's just an example of trying to throw the baby out with the bathwater mm-hmm. that if you can look at the riots and go, that's bad, then you can throw out the entire protest. Yeah. Or that's murder. Yeah. That's yeah. bad. I don't have to talk about it any further. Yeah, yeah. It requires it requires the hard work of, of nuance. That might not be the word I want. But you have to be able to say, I recognize that this extreme expression of it, I do not support. But now that I've said that, Back to what I do support, and I do support the protesting. There is clearly injustice that's happening, and it's systemic, and it's uh, it's ongoing, and it's serious. Okay, so am I able to find that ground where I can I can set the thing aside that has gone too far without using that as an excuse to ignore the thing that I need to remember? Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, I think that was my hope with a lot of the discussions that I've had or the posting that I've done is just to allow people to try to just consider why these things are even taking place in the first place. Because to many people who haven't paid attention, um, which is very easy to do, particularly in a northern uh, Michigan community as a white person, if you haven't really concerned yourself with uh, police brutality um, on the black community, then it might not make sense to you why all of a sudden George Floyd's murder has led to this eruption throughout all our major cities. Like it wouldn't make sense, but I'm asking you to try to figure out um, how to understand that. That's another thing that, that we can say is that you can look at these events taking place and you say, you know, I just don't understand. And in some way that, 
that's like trying to give yourself a pass. Like, I just don't understand. I wish I could understand. How many people say that without actually having tried to understand? Yeah. I do it. Yeah. And now I'm seeing it on a large scale. Don't say you don't understand if you haven't genuinely tried to understand. Yeah. That's like saying, I'm fighting against this particular sin when you've never actually fought against that mm-hmm. particular sin. You've thought about you've th- fighting <laughs> what it, it might look like. Yeah. <laughs> I've thought about understanding. Uh, Taylor, that came home to me last year. I was teaching my class at NMC, and one of my students did a project. It's an ethics class. So one of them did a project on schools that were created by the U.S. government for Native Americans. And they went back, these go back a long time. And the last one closed, I think it was up in Petoskey, not that long ago. Mm. But there was a time in American history where the powers that be decided the only way to get Native Americans civilized is to school them in our schools. So they created these boarding schools and would literally take the kids away from their parents and put them in these boarding schools. And the argument was, well, now we're educating them so they'll be civilized. Well, okay, set aside the appalling (laughs) removing of the children from their homes. They would go to villages and round up the children. The education they gave them was not the same education that they gave white students. And in fact, in these boarding schools, they basically were caretakers. That was basically their education. So when they got out of there, so this goes back to our discussion of privilege, quote unquote, they were not educated to move into white collar jobs. I'm going to speak very broadly here. Uh, And so it created this cycle of a lack of education, which often led to poverty because they couldn't get good jobs. And then they have kids and their kids would be taken away from them and put back into that same cycle. And I had a student in my class whose grandparents had gone through those schools and he was passionate about it. (laughs) Sorry. Hopefully you can edit it that. Yeah. Um, Technology this is, is raw. I, I don't, I'm not going to add it. Okay. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, but his grandparents experienced and told him. And so suddenly a reality, part of American history that was very real to him because it had all kinds of impact on his life was suddenly right in front of me in a classroom. And I had gotten to know this student and I liked the student. And suddenly it mattered to me in ways it had not before. Mm-hmm. I think I'd always kind of known it intellectually but had not really had a a conversation with someone whose own life was deeply impacted by generational injustice. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's a big call for us right now is to figure out what does it look like, like you said, to not just say, I don't understand or I don't get it, but to walk into our misunderstanding and, and do the hard work of listening. Once again, sitting on the bench. A couple of years ago when the Me Too movement took off and I suddenly the news was full of stories. And I mean, I'd always known this had been present because as a pastor, for one, I talk to women who have experienced abuse in their life. But it suddenly seemed like, whoa, this is far more overwhelming than I realized. So I started reading. I tried to read every article that went across my screen. And then I went to the library and picked up a book of essays. Taylor, I couldn't finish it. Mm-hmm. It was so hard to read. It was so heartbreaking. And after I finished that book, I started having more conversations well, with my wife and with other women that I'm good friends with and saying, can you just tell me 
how you have experienced men in your life. And dear God, it was just heart-wrenching. And I, and I realized I hadn't known. I mean, I had known in my head and, and I had, I had dedicated my life to not being that kind of guy because mm -hmm. I knew it had an impact, but I never realized how systematically women experience abuse from men in our culture. Um, and that, that in some ways was life-changing for me. I, I think now I understand in ways I didn't before why, why so many women have such a difficult time trusting men, especially as authority figures. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. And I, I think, Taylor, you and I both probably have the same prayer in all this, and that is the, these situations like what are happening now with George and with Ahmad and um, that they are having that kind of transformative power, not just in our own lives, but culturally, that this will be a, a moment that doesn't let us go back to simply having head knowledge of something, mm -hmm. but now it's in our hearts and this changes everything. Mm -hmm. It is. That's what we're supposed to do is have that deeper understanding, not just an understanding of, well, I know that this happened and it might still be happening, but it's not happening from me. And if you do that, like it's great to control yourself. And, and I keep seeing this too, like, well, I'm not racist. And the, the other thing that I heard the other day that I thought was a good point is it was a black pastor. I forget his name. And he was talking about um, people who are not racist and they would be okay if their daughter married a black man. Because that, that is kind of like, wouldn't that just epitomize like how okay you are yeah. with black people is if one married my daughter. And he says, that's great that you'd be in support of that. But would your mom, would your dad, mm -hmm. would your sister, would your brother, would your aunt, would your uncle? And how far down the line do you have to go until you would find someone who really just doesn't like that whole idea? Mm -hmm. Probably not as far as, as you'd and those are the people whose hearts need change. Those are the people that we have to speak out against and we have to educate. Um, but also just as dangerous are the people who are indifferent about these things that we're seeing and yeah. the sin of indifference. And I can't be indifferent. That's a great point. Let's just say, Taylor, that you are a person who is just not racist to be indifferent to, I'm not picking on you, yep. right? To be indifferent, though, to the issue of racism does suggest mm -hmm. <laughs> there is still an indifference there that is significant and sinful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's that's really hard to come to, to come to grips with. And maybe in some ways it's hard also because of the visibility on social media. And so even if you do agree with some type of movement or stand for something you're not quite at the point where you want to voice it on social media because then you got i've been attacked the mm -hmm. last couple of weeks i understand that um so i wonder how many people are falling into that and i don't know if it's a if it's a lack of courage even i just think it's a lack of understanding of like how needed you are in this moment is that yeah yeah no, I <laughs> I totally hear you. There there are many days I want to weigh in on things, and I think 
I don't know if I can stand another barrage mm-hmm. of, yeah, I, I need to regain my strength. Um, I wonder too, Taylor, how much virtue signaling plays in this. So for people who aren't familiar with the term, it's this idea that you poster say virtuous things so you look good, but mm-hmm. it's more almost of a uh, you're just signaling something that everybody else is signaling rather than it being something that's embedded in your heart. And I talked with someone recently about this very issue because they were they were saying how unsettled they were about what happened with was George Floyd. Was that his name? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But they said, I've already posted some stuff about it. And I'm afraid if I just keep posting, it's going to come across to people now as virtue signaling mm-hmm. that now I'm just on the bandwagon, you know, an issue I've never cared before. Suddenly it's front and center. But they said, I did care about it before. This is just a highlight. But I think if I do too much, people are going to think almost like it's drawing attention to how virtuous I am because I'm caring. Mm-hmm. And, and so they were really torn. Like, if I don't say anything, I, I can't do that. I have to speak up because this is a big deal. If I say too much, people are going to be dismissive and that's counterproductive. So mm-hmm. <laughs> now how do I uh, – it's, it's a weird place to figure out how you give your voice strength. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. I experience it with the podcast. There's some episodes where I'm like, you know, this was just me kind of having fun. And how many people listened to that, but then didn't listen to the one where I disclosed trauma that I experienced or, um, you know, talking about things like this racial tension, you know, how many people did I waste, you know, on this other topic that should be, (laughs) that I should, I just wish would hear these things. And there is that fear of just being drowned out by your own voice. By your own voice. That's right. But And yet on the other hand, those just for fun podcasts are establishing who you are mm-hmm. just so people know you as a person. And that seems important too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think, Taylor, we probably just, we muddle our way through this with the best wisdom we have, you know, and – we're reading the Bible, we're praying, we're talking to other Christians, we're exercising our intellect. And at the end of the day, you give your best offering. Mm-hmm. And at some point, I think you you let it go and, and you just pray, oh, dear God, bring something good from this. Yeah. Yeah. Where does, where does it fit in to be, um, we are at a point, and I don't know how deep we will get into this, uh, but where the Christian community is whether we want it or not, is being represented by certain figures. And the harm that I think can come from that, and even maybe on the scale of of me. So like what if, what if I am what if I am to a non-believer, if they've only heard me speak, I am now representative mm-hmm. of all of Christians, mm-hmm. right? In some way. If fair or unfair, that's probably yes. the reality of it. How do we maneuver that? I was reading this week about the third or fourth commandment, depending on which breakdown you use of the commandments, which says, don't take God's name in vain. And the idea in the Hebrew is that you don't take upon yourself the burden or the mantle of the reputation of God if you're going to do it lightly. And we often hear, at least in sermons, this idea of, so don't swear, don't say God's name. And that's certainly part of it. You don't say God's name casually. But I think the main purpose of that commandment is simply saying, 
Don't say you're on God's team or align yourself with God and say that now my presence will say something about who God is, like you were describing a little bit ago. Don't do that unless you're going to take it seriously. And the warning that comes with that is significant. Like um, God will not allow his name being taken lightly to go unpunished. So one of the things I think is helpful for us to think about as Christians is, is what I'm saying or doing going to cause God's name to be given greater weight and taken more seriously in people's lives? Or is it going to cause them to defame the name of God because of something I have done? And the Bible, especially the Old Testament, is full of examples where the children of Israel are told by the prophets, other nations are defaming the name of God by what you're doing. You even see Jesus in his prayer. He says, uh, pray our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Or probably a better translation is, hallow your name through us, which simply means help us to represent you in such a way that people take you seriously. So, for example, yesterday after the president gave his speech in the Rose Garden and then he walked over to the church um, and held up a Bible as part of a photo op, he didn't walk to the church to pray. He walked to the church for a photo op with a Bible and to get there, the um, the police were gassing protesters, peaceful protesters. It was in what was probably a breaking of the Geneva Convention. And just before that, he had given his speech about the importance of using violence to quell protesters. All right. I, I don't think then attaching all of the previous things with the church and the Bible helps the nations to take the name of God seriously. And based on the response that I have seen online, uh, they are not. <laughs> that, that, is, that was not seen as lifting up the name of God and his majesty and, and his goodness. Um, so then I asked myself, would Jesus be walking with protesters? I could see that, actually. Would Jesus be encouraging arsonists and looters? No, I can't see that at all. So then what do I do as a Christian? Well, then I could see myself supporting the protest. I think that lifts up the name of God because God is for justice. Um, but I wouldn't see myself lifting up the, the looting and the arson because, no, I don't see Jesus doing that. And so I don't think that lifts up the name of God. Um, I think we lift up the name of God by standing for truth by standing for justice and mercy. Yes, we stand for law and order, but it's always tempered with grace. They're not, it's not one or the other, it's both. Um, righteousness, peace, and joy is something that the Bible describes as what Christians are experiencing with life in Christ. All right. What does it look like to represent righteousness and peace <laughs> right now would be a big one. And the joy that I as a Christian am meant to experience in any situation. The fruits of the Spirit include things like self-control, all right? Um, so when I live a self-controlled life, I am lifting up the name of Christ. I'm honoring who He is and what He has given to me in the sense that I can participate um, in life with and in Christ. Uh, I feel like that's probably the guiding principle, at least for me. I keep coming back to that. What does it look like for me to live in a way such that the name of God, the reputation of God is given the weight it deserves. I'll always do it imperfectly, right? Mm. Everybody in my life can attest to that. But when I when I screw up, I got to come back to it again. All right. Um, I can repent. I can ask forgiveness. I can acknowledge what I have done wrong. 
And then I, I rededicate myself to this representation of Christ. I, I don't know. That's, that's a guidance for me. What, mm-hmm. Is there something that stands out for you that kind of grounds you as you think about your presence? Yeah. I mean, I love the righteousness of it and how even anger can be can yeah, be righteous. Absolutely. And so that's been hope for me is because I've been so angry is now am I allowing that anger to be shaped in a way that's righteous and that's going to um, lead to peace, right? So when we're talking about injustice, inequality, disparity, police brutality, there's not peace in that. Like just because – like during times of injustice or exercising injustice, even if there isn't physical violence that's coming along with that, that's not peace. There's people who don't have that peace in their heart at the same level that other people do. And so is is the righteousness of my actions now going to be able to contribute to some level of justice and peace in the future? And that's what I'm like hoping and praying is taking place. Yeah, we're not called to be peacekeepers. We're called to be peacemakers. Mm. I think peacekeepers can gloss over things because they just want life to go smoothly. Peacemakers walk into it. So I can see us doing two things as peacemakers right now. One is we want peace in that we don't want the looting and the arson. But the other is we want peace in that we need justice because no justice, no peace, right, is the classic phrase. And there's truth to that. So as peacemakers, we have to fight for for righting the injustice that is leading to all these other expressions of things that are not peaceful. What's the issue? Justice is not being served. Mm-hmm. And I think you're right, Taylor. If we're not angry about that, that would be unrighteous. Mm. Yeah, certainly angry. Yeah. I just hope it's directed the way that God wants and that do you think that that comes with from sitting in it for a while? Do I think what comes from sitting? Like making sure it's placed in the right, in the right direction because so much of what I'm angry with, I can already tell is a combination of righteous anger, but also the anger at just the, the narrow mindedness of the people that I feel like I'm fighting against. Mm. And I, I, I don't know. Like I've, I've said um, in a couple of messages with people who have reached out in support of what I'm saying, um, and I will say that those outnumber the the negative response. So yeah. if you are getting any value from anything that anybody is saying, I always encourage this: is to reach out to them and tell them that you appreciate that, because you might be like the last straw between them silencing themselves or not. And if I've gained so much um, from those encouraging messages, but the reality is I think that I'm going to lose some relationships over this. I just do. And I'm angry about that. And I'm angry because I think it's their fault. (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. And my anger is just a, a hodgepodge of different types of anger. And so I don't know how to sift through it yet. Yeah, they're angry because they think it's your fault. Mm-hmm. No, I, I think you're right. I think I think most people are recognizing they'll probably lose friendships 
over the last three months worth of life. Um, I'm certain everyone contributes to the fracturing of that, but I don't know that it's fair to say it's a 50 50. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, yeah, I, I don't quite know what to do with that. I wonder Taylor, if in terms of the timing of responses, so the Bible talks about at times, be still and know that I am God. Wait on the Lord, right? So part of part of our calling as Christians is to not rush inappropriately into situations we're not ready to rush into. That there are times where we do simply need to sit and wait. We're needing to learn. We're needing for God to temper our attitudes. Uh, we're needing to gain wisdom. We're needing to gain direction. We're, there's lots of good reasons to to wait and to even rest. Um, but the danger is, of course, that we become so settled there that we don't then re-engage when it's time to re-engage. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that there's a formula for that. I think it's something we have to be honest in front of God about and maybe a close circle of friends. And that rhythm of waiting, engaging, waiting, engaging. The, the one thing I know is that the Bible is clear about two extremes. We shouldn't be rash. That's one extreme. We can't be apathetic. That's the other extreme. Figuring out what that golden mean in the middle looks like, it's hard work. We'll do it imperfectly, mm -hmm. um, but we, we do it as best we know how. Hmm. That's important to keep in mind. So rash or apathetic. Yeah. And the added difficulty of conversations like this is people are at different levels of being prepared to have the conversations. Yes. And so if there's someone that I'm disagreeing with, some of it could just be because they haven't yet looked at everything. Like I have a friend who we're having conversations over the rioting and the looting, and I just shared with them, like, no, this is why it's happening. And there's these examples throughout history of things that have led to events like this. Don't have to condone it, yeah. but this is why. And we've been continuing to message, and there's been like realization within that for both of us. But that doesn't mean that sometimes when we jump into a conversation that we're all ready to actually have it. And sometimes yeah. we still have them, though. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that does more harm than good. It probably depends. I think it's good. And I think you made an important distinction. Understanding something is not the same as approbation of something. I can understand something without thinking it's fantastic. There's an author who exemplifies this for me. This guy, his name is James Lee Burke. And he has a series of books with a detective named Robichu, and they're down in New Orleans area. And if you like Southern literature, they're fantastic. <laughs> but one of the things he does really, really well is he, de he describes the backstory of evil people in a way that as you get to know them throughout his novels, at some point you almost inevitably go, okay, I get it. I get it now why they're doing what they're doing. But you never say that with a sense that of now it's excusable. It just makes it even more tragic. Mm -hmm. And I've seen very few authors pull this off. They're, they tend to either make the villain seem heroic mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, or go into some other distortion. But James Lee Burke uh, manages to make me sympathetic 
to people who deserve the justice that's headed their way. Mm-hmm. And that's a, figuring out how to navigate that nuance. I think that's, it is a lot of conversations like you're describing with your friends is trying to figure out how do we gain an understanding that helps to bring clarity to all the reasons, all the moving parts. Doesn't mean that we're going to, at the end of the day, go, oh, well, then this is good. But it might help us simply to say, oh, now I weep for what has led people to believe that this is the only voice they have. Mm-hmm. I mean, isn't that where the Christian heart goes, right? Isn't I think our heart at the end of the day is supposed to be broken for the sinfulness of the world. And if we're not getting to that place, then I think we're missing something important about understanding life on this side of heaven. Mm-hmm. I think there's, there's a lot of heartbroken people right now. And I keep speaking to like this movement or this boiling point or this crossroads or whatever it is that I think we're in the middle of. And I'm not to say that it can't escalate further. I'm not saying that this is like the pinnacle of change that we're going to see. But I do think we are like entering this area of drastic change and there's room for it to get better and there's a lot of room for it to get worse. And I'm nervous about that. But I, I am trying to remind myself to be hopeful too. Yeah. Um, and so that's been, we just naturally focus on the negative. Uh, it's much easier for me to define the negative things that I've seen than it is to define the reasons for hope. Uh, but I'm, why do you think that is some of it's human nature? Um, some of it is my own personal tendency to just become frustrated and, and hopeless about the the negative actions, the negative responses that are taking place. Am I alone in that? Am I- no, and I think I think it reflects that we as sinful human beings, we know what it's like to plumb the depths of evil. It's why horror is such a popular genre, I think. Uh, and I I heard a horror writer speak about this once, and he said. We, we know how to represent the depths of depravity in humanity because we've all gone there, at least in our minds. Mm-hmm. Like we know what we're capable of. What we don't know is our capacity for goodness, which I thought was a, and this wasn't a Christian guy. I thought that was a shockingly insightful, probably biblically insightful thing. The premises that we're fallen people and on this side of heaven, we won't understand the purity of goodness on this side of heaven. We'll understand uh, the depths of evil. And we'll, we get taste of goodness, right? That's what Christ offers to us is this redemption and this renewal and new life. And we get all these oases mm-hmm. in the wasteland of the world that are pointing us toward the ultimate new heaven and new earth. So it, it's not as if we're without, you know, those places of joy and peace and hope. But we don't know how to plumb those like we know how to plumb evil. And I think that's why when we look at times now in our society, I think we know how bad this could get. I mean, we've seen The Walking Dead, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Uh, we know how bad it can get. It's hard for us to envision how good it could get. Mm-hmm. I wonder if those oases that you speak to are other people. So are we are we struggling to like create a sense of hope in ourselves? And so we're reliant on other people that are that are leading the mm-hmm. way to, to hope. And so it makes me question or wonder what is my role in 
and hope and providing hope. And then who do I need to look to for hope as well? Obviously, my faith. Right. But also, who has God put in my life that I can count on for that dose of hope that I think is needed in order to sustain whatever efforts are needed right now? So we were talking about this earlier, actually. There's God and there's God's image bearers. So our hope is in God, but because we bear God's image, and then as Christians, because we are actually part of his temple, right? Holy Spirit indwells us. We are this physical presence, so to speak. Um, the Bible, we talk about the church as the hands and feet of Jesus, right? Um, I think that's more often than not, we often do find hope through the presence of hope in God's people. Mm-hmm. Not that God doesn't supernaturally um, give us the gift of hope as well, but we represent him. So it would make sense to me that we bring hope with us. So Taylor, I feel hopeful talking to you, even though a lot of our conversation is about the difficulty of this time. The fact that you love God and have a heart for the world and for justice and peace and righteousness, that gives me hope. Mm-hmm. So I think even conversations like this that seem, in one sense, seem very discouraging because we're talking about the brokenness of the world, but we're talking about it as two people who believe God has the power to restore individuals. And as individuals are restored, situations and systems follow. So we grieve as those with hope. We apply that just to death usually at funerals. But I think that's true as we grieve for the world. We don't grieve without hope. Mm-hmm. We actually do have a hope. Okay. Yeah. We're just forgetting it sometimes. We're, We're it's failing to, to realize. Yeah, man. It's easy to forget. Huh. Yeah, this was this was helpful. Um, definitely. I know that we came together to kind of speak about, you know, the role of Christians and the responsibility of the church at times like this. Is there anything that you feel like we didn't flesh out well enough or that we need to touch on? I think I just want to add this. This is the idea of fixing our eyes on Jesus. Um, Right now, there are a lot of some, maybe this goes back to finding the Moses, the Moses who speaks for God. And once again, I don't have a particular person in mind. I'm trying to borrow from an image in the Old Testament. It's easy to look at what's happening right now with both COVID-19 and the civil unrest. Say, okay, who will save me? COVID-19, is it the epidemiologist? Is it the doctor? Is it the economist? Is it the WHO? Is it the CDC? Is it Governor Whitmer? Is it President Trump? Who will save me? And then with this social unrest, we go, okay, will the governors crack down? Will the, right? It's all something earthbound that we can tend to look toward. And then we find voices that we want to hear from our favorite TV news shows or blogs or commentators. We find these voices, these leaders that we want to follow. And I'm more convinced than ever, they cannot lead us to a a land of hope and a land of promise. If I go back to where Moses was leading the children of Israel, there is one voice alone that leads us there, and that's Christ. So how do I hear the voice of Christ? Well, reading the Bible is the most obvious thing. But I think it also means 
embedding myself in the community of Christ followers. So it's people like you. It's other people in my church. It's when I go online to find resources on how to think and feel about what's happening, I'm starting with Christian voices. Those are the things building my foundation because those are the Moseses. <laughs> Is that a good plural? The Mosai. <laughs> uh, they're, if they are truly representing God well, this is going to reorient me. It's going to ground me. It's going to keep taking me back to Christ is my hope and my salvation. He's the author and the finisher of my faith. He is the hope for the world. All the groaning in creation is calling out to him for redemption. And no one else is going to be able to stifle those groans. It's only the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that changes hearts and then that um, moves out and ripples into the world and changes the world. I, I have to keep going to that. And I feel like with a conversation like this, we have to end with where are we reorienting and regrounding ourselves? What is ordering our hearts and our minds? Um, yeah, that's without that, man, I, I don't have any hope without that. Mm -hmm. Look, I mean, human history gives me no reason to find hope without that. Um, it's Jesus who changes people and changes the world. Fitting ending. Um, what is ordering our hearts and minds? That th th This episode is specifically meant for uh, Christians. But what I'm excited about is that there are non-Christians that are going to hear this. And that is what is meant to act as the challenge for the Christian listeners mm. is this this conversation was meant to challenge you, perhaps shake you, to encourage you, to, to provide a sense of hope, but the need for change. Um, and to challenge you, like, what is ordering your heart and mind? And now for those um, non-believers that are listening, you Christians can understand what they're now expecting of you because we just laid it out here. Yeah, And so... <laughs> It's on you, right? It's yeah. it. I love that. Um, I'm so passionate about this. Thank you so much for helping me uh, work through and kind of flesh out some of these ideas to the listeners. I think that this is really helpful. Um, and thank you guys so much for listening. I know these conversations aren't always easy, and you could you could seek um, entertainment or information elsewhere. It would be very easy to do that. But I do think that this is going to make a difference for a lot of people as we're just we're in a really pivotal moment. I do believe that. Um, love you guys. Thanks for listening.